violent attack by an unknown assailant lands a wealthy and powerful architect, 52 years old, in the hospital. Then, back home with his 32-year-old fiance, paranoia begins to consume Greg. He installs cameras throughout the house and begins spying on Jade, who's trying desperately to keep her own secrets. Meanwhile, Greg's ex-wife and two adult children begin planting seeds of doubt that the love the two thought they shared might not even be real. This is Kate Hollihan's latest novel, Her Three Lives. Hollihan specializes in domestic psychological thrillers, inviting her readers to tumble down the dark paths she creates. Kate spoke with Paul about her career as a writer, this latest work, and why she and her readers love this tortured genre. Kate, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Your book kept me up reading when I should have been sleeping. Good, good. That's what you like to hear. <laughs> so tell me, how did you come up with the story behind Her Three Lives? Yeah, well, you know, I always joke that I write from a place of anxiety. So anything that bothers me and has me thinking um, usually uh, becomes the germ of a story idea. So with this one, I was thinking of all of these cameras that you know so many of us have that I have, the Nest cams and the ring doorbells and the um, all the assistants, the you know Alexa and Google assistants and and just how much spying you could kind of unintentionally do on your own family. Uh, in the interest of securing your home and keeping everyone safe. And uh, it really came about because I had these cameras because when my kids were young, you know, to kind of make sure that nobody woke up in the middle of the night, you know, takes a tumble down the stairs or whatever. And um, now they're older, they're uh, nine and 11. And if they get into an argument, I found myself saying things like, well, you know, I can go to the tape. I can see who started it. Or, and then I thought, wow, that has to be damaging, <laughs> you know? And so I started to think, well, what if you were in a situation where, you know, there's this couple has this violent attack and they do everything they can to kind of uh, secure their home, particularly uh, Greg, who was struck on the head with a crowbar and ends up uh, suffering a traumatic brain injury. So he's really stuck in the house. You know, he has a helmet on. And so he doesn't feel physically capable of, of really defending his home. So he's doing it to the best of his ability electronically. And then he starts inadvertently spying on his wife, which leads to more deliberate spying on his wife as he starts to suspect that um, maybe some, she had something to do with this, this break-in that nearly cost him his life. Um, and so, yeah, it really just came from, from my unease with all of this technology and even how I was using it. And then I thought, well, now who would be like, two of the worst people to have access to these to all of this and be suffering um, from a kind of trauma that might lead them to abuse it. And that, that really was the genesis of the book. Oh, that's really interesting. It does, it plays quite a big role in the paranoia. And I'll tell you, I was very creeped out at the way Greg was talking to her through the cameras and the speakers felt very unnerving. That's the tension, right? Is that it's changed the way we interact with one another and not necessarily for the better, but it's also very convenient, right? And so, and in this book, you know, Greg, um, he has balance issues after he was hit in the head. So his natural thing, instead of like going from room to room in this large house is just, well, use the, the intercom system, which it makes perfect logical sense, 
but there is this unease and it's like it's it's dehumanizing in a way when you're living with somebody and yet you're speaking to them through technology. So let me back up a little bit and ask you about your career and how you got into this. So you were a newspaper reporter. I wrote for the record newspaper and then um after that, I was at Business Week for a while. I covered technology and internet advertising. And so that was really uh, the genesis of my writing career. And then um, I moved from there to being a producer at CNBC for a bit. And um, finally, when I had my second kid, I realized the breaking news schedule wasn't really conducive to me having younger children. And I'd always written fiction on the side. And so I said, okay, well, let me just buckle down and really just make this my full focus other than the kids and then um, see if I can go anywhere with it. And so I wrote that book and um, I got an agent and that was a dark turns. And then now I'm five books later and I have contracts for two more coming out next year. And that's how it happened. I think a lot of people would love to become a novelist. It's sort of their secret ambition. Most people don't really make it happen. So it's interesting to me that you did, you know? And I guess maybe having the, groundwork already laid with having already done some writing probably helped you make that transition? Absolutely. I mean, you know, my agent refers to it as journalism is playing your scales, even though it's a different kind of writing. Um, you are playing your scales every day. You are used to just waking up and needing to write no matter what. You know, um, at Business Week, we had to do one to two online articles for the online property and then like an overarching magazine story for the end of the week, usually expanding on one of the stories you'd written. So you just get used to kind of that discipline that I write every day. And I thought that was really helpful when I went into um, fiction writing because, you know, I didn't sit there and go, oh, I have writer's block today. I'm not feeling inspired. You know, I would write and then sometimes, you know, I delete what I wrote. It was like that chapter is not going to make it in. But I was going to write every day. You know, if you write every day at, at the end of a few months, you'll end up with a hundred thousand words. Um, the other thing that I think hurts journalists when they want to do it is if you're writing every day, it is then hard to go home and write more. Right? You've already put, you've already like put out 3000 words into the world and then you're going to go home and write like another 1500. Um, and so I got a good piece of advice, which was a little painful to hear when I'm, um, when I had been writing on the side, I went to a conference and there was an author and he said, you know, I do this every day for six hours a day and it's just fiction. And so he said, and when you're trying to break in, you're competing with me because you are, you're just that they already have their stable of writers. And so you're trying to get, you know, get in there. And I do think it really didn't happen for me until I took that year off and I said, okay, I'm going to focus on it because I am competing with people where this is what they do. And that's what their focus is all day. I think also, and I think you've spoken about this a little bit before that as a journalist, you, you write about some dark things sometimes, but they're true stories. So now you're again, writing about some dark things, but it's fiction. So I think there's a little bit of a link there maybe as well. Oh, absolutely. I think also, um, it's a way where I get to control the ending. So I can I can uh, have this catharsis of it ending in a way that's neat, where the guilty are punished and, and the, the victims have some sort of resolution, which you don't get that satisfaction when you're writing um, for journalism. At one point I was covering, this was a brief period where I was working for MSN Money. 
and uh, the whole Bernie Madoff scandal happened. And I was interviewing his victims and it was, oh boy, it was just so depressing because there were these people that just, they had lost everything. There was one woman who she, uh, she had had early onset, early onset Parkinson's. And so, uh, you know, she had retired and put her entire retirement savings with Madoff uh, because she had heard that, you know, he's kind of, he's a diligent and safe investor and you'll get 12% a year. And, and so she did it and lost everything. And she had an adopted child who all of a sudden she was worried, like, how am I going to take care of this person? Because I, um, I can't work, you know, I, I have um, Parkinson's. And so, and then the story just, you write the article and then you go and you kind of, it's not resolved for years, right? So I get to write in The Widower's Wife where there's like a bad financial actor. And at the end, you know, it's very satisfying <laughs> if I do say so myself. I think I found that in a, um, a talk that you gave to the Rocky Mountain fiction writers. And I thought that that was, you put it really well. You said it satisfies a sense of justice that so many of us feel isn't sufficiently present in our real world. Uh, the one challenge for me as a writer is you can never write villains that you don't somewhat sympathize with because the, that adage holds true that every villain is the hero of their own story, right? And so you have to kind of connect with what is it that's driving them to do these, these bad acts. And if you do it well at the end when you punish them, because they deserve to be punished, but like, uh, and, it, and the story resolves, you do feel bad to some degree, because it, you you had to understand something. I mean, even with Madoff, as awful as it was, and he destroyed so many uh, people's livelihoods and their, and their savings, um, you know, I'm sure in his mind, he was the hero of his family. He created this all this amazing wealth for his family, and he was generous with friends. And, you know, I mean, that was his psychology. And so, uh, you do have that that tension as an author of like, how do you resolve it in a satisfying way, but also recognizing that all your characters are human and there's always something redeeming about everybody. I think that makes a much more satisfying storyline because you get those layers of complexity that really keep you thinking. That was one of the things I noticed when I was reading Her Three Lives is that it really felt like anyone could have done it you know, and I'm running through all of their motives and all of their thinking, and I just couldn't figure out who it was gonna be. And that's why I couldn't put it down. Oh, thank you. That's good. That's great to hear. Cause every now and then you get a, a reader that's just like, they just wanna know. And it's a different genre. I think that people love police procedurals because they kind of know like the policeman, even if they're tortured or whatever is probably the good guy. And they can feel safe about that. And the deal with psychological thrillers is that every character could be the antagonist, right? That's, and so it's an unease where you, you're seeing it through their eyes and you wanna sympathize with them, but at the end, of, you also know that they ha they're flawed in a way where maybe they could have done something horrible. And uh, that's a tension in there. And, I, and none of the characters were 100% likable. That was yeah. something else. They all had something redeeming, but they all had something where I was like, I don't 100% love you. And yeah. again, that kept it very interesting. Good. Well, I'm glad. Mm -hmm. That's the tension. There are people that they want to 100% love the character, 
you know, they want, and psychological thrillers aren't really the best for those readers because that's the whole thing is that you, you're, you're not creating people that someone would necessarily be best friends with because ideally that person that's your best friend probably is not going to find themselves in a murder mystery. Right. I kind of feel like most people who find themselves in those situations, you know, they've made some mistakes. They've associated with people that have some issues and, you know, there's a, there's a reason why, why they're in those situations and it doesn't happen to like the majority of us, you know. Can you talk a little bit about how you research characters and settings for your books to give them that, that feeling that these could be real people? Yeah, um, well, I, I interview people. I mean, that's another great holdover from journalism is um, that lack of shame. You can just walk over to anybody and go, hey, I'm writing something. <laughs> like, and you seem like you're the person to talk to. And, and so I've done that with a lot of books. You know, I will... I've in, I'll interview detectives when I'm writing that kind of a character. Um, in this case, I interviewed um, people that were surgeons about how they go about, uh, you know, the kind of operations. I interviewed architects because there is a certain, you know, different industries lend themselves to, to different egos and different kind of ways of being. It doesn't mean that everybody in the industry is like that, but there's kind of like a prevailing attitude and even people that don't have that attitude, feel like maybe they have to kind of adopt it to a certain degree. So I wanted to get into the psychology of somebody who has had a lot of success as an architect who's designed skyscrapers. So he's a big shot and kind of the ego that would, that would be involved in a person like that. And then um, what happens when you take away a lot of their agency because they're stuck at home recovering from a traumatic brain injury? Because I, you're always looking for the person that would be the worst equipped to deal with the situation in a thriller. You know, if, if it's me and I lack some agency, I spend most of my time sitting by myself writing. It's kind of like, I'm, I'm gonna be fine, <laughs> you know? But, but then there's somebody else used to controlling their world and kind of molding it in a certain way that might be less fine. I think that's interesting that you go out and you're interviewing, you're getting, getting into their world and you've, you've talked before about doing that even more like the, do you want to tell, talk a little bit about when you took all those ballet classes for a previous oh. book? Cause I thought that was really interesting. Well, cause the first book, the first version of that book that I wrote that I, I got an agent with it, but it didn't get published. Um, it had a, it had a younger uh, villain. I kind of had this, this um, very uh, immoral um, middle school student. And my agent said, you know, I think people are just uncomfortable with that, with the bad seed thing. Like, why don't you make it a teenager? Because everyone believes teenagers are evil. And so, I mean, so I said, okay, but I wanted to then, if I was going to change it, have uh, create a scenario where those, those kids would be naturally competing and maybe put in competitive situations that were a little beyond what, um, what most kids are, are facing um, in that high school scenario. And so, I thought, well, I'll make it this like really competitive dance program where they're all kind of going for the same slots and shows. And then that's going to lead them into conservatories for college. And, and so it would be a bit more cutthroat. And then I realized I had no idea what that world looked like. So I uh, joined this dance class, which was all kind of uh, former ballerinas who had been in you know, national productions, or at least I think the one that had the least amount of experience had still danced in college, you know, and um, 
And so I took the class to interview them and also just to, to kind of have some understanding of the physicality of, of doing that every day for hours and how, how exhausted you would feel and, um, and what it does to your body. And then also on top of that, because there's a certain like aesthetic look to ballerinas, you know, they have to be very careful with what they're eating. And, um, and so I kind of put myself through that for a year, which I thought really enriched the characters and made them, um, and I, I heard from some dancers that read the book that I got the ballet right and I got that atmosphere right. So that's always feels good. And I owe that all to everyone I took the class with, you know. That would make it very authentic. You know, if, if someone who's in that world can read your book and say, yeah, that's it. That was, that was my hope. Um, and they did put me in the recital way, way, way in the back. They, it was like all like the real dancers. And then I was there as like a, <laughs> a token because I was in the class. And it is amazing. Like it is hard to plie because like everything, every movement has to be so articulated, you know? And that's just not how like I think. I mean, you know, I'm constantly like that, like a hunchback, you know? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it was, it was interesting. But that's probably the most research I ever did because now that you're, I'm on a book a year schedule, there's no more year of research. It's like, get it done. So let me ask you about something else that I heard in, um, in that talk, which is that story should have something to say. And for example, in Her Three Lives, there's a strong thread in there about how damaging racial stereotypes can be. So I was curious, how have you tried to do that with, with this book? And, and why do you think it's important that your books have a broader message, if that's the right word? Yeah, you know, writers are divided on this. Some writers are just like, ah, just entertain. You know, that's all, that's all we're here for. And I, I do try to mostly just entertain, but I think that you know, I think all characters have um, have different aspects and all of us have kind of like a, it's not exactly a political life because I'm not making a political statement. It's more just, we're dealing with uh, the constructs of our society, right? And that's, and that affects our lives. And so I don't feel like I'm making um, genuine characters if, if that doesn't exist at all in the story. So in this case, I have, uh, with Her Three Lives, I have a mixed, couple. Um, I'm biracial, so I grew up with mixed parents. My mom's Jamaican and my dad's Irish. And in this case, there's also an age gap between this couple. And he has adult children who are kind of suspicious of, as to why a younger woman would be involved with their father. And so she's secretive about certain things in her background because she feels that it's going to play into these unfair stereotypes that his kids and maybe even Greg to an extent have about her, you know, about that she only wants him for his money or that if she's somehow involved with him that uh, there has to be something more nefarious going on because people don't date cross-culturally because of love. It has to be like all these other things. And, and I obviously don't believe that. And so that, but that is one of the the kind of the undercurrent themes that, that dictate some of their behavior. And I do think with stereotypes, people are very conscious when they feel that they're being stereotyped in a certain way of not falling into that box, right? And then how does that knowledge um, affect behavior? I know for me, for example, my kids are, 
Uh, so my dad's Irish and my husband's Swedish and somehow the Jamaican just kind of got passed over and my kids ended up with blue eyes and blonde hair and pretty fair. And I'm constantly going out there and people think I'm the nanny, right? Um, because I'm much darker than they are. And they, I do think if you look at their faces, you can see me, but I think people just see the overall coloring impression. And I've had um, scenarios where even once I was stopped by the police for rolling a stop sign. And at the time, I guess they were looking for a lot of undocumented uh, nannies. And they said to me that they would take these kids. <laughs> like, and I was like, these kids, you mean my kids? <laughs> and so, but I, and, but I remember after that, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I have to stop going out of the house in sweats. Because in my head, there was this feeling of, I need to make it more clear that I'm, you know, I'm their mother and I'm, you know, a working professional because I don't want to fall into this box of someone seeing, you know, a darker skinned woman than my kids in, um, in sweatpants and automatically like putting all this, this stuff on me, you know? And so th that is definitely a theme in that book. But I try to do that with a lot of books. I have another, you know, with The Widower's Wife, she's, the main character is a first generation American and her parents are immigrants and they're, uh, well, they were undocumented immigrants and they're deported. And I really wanted, I wanted that because I wanted a character that for reasons of the story really wouldn't have a support system. So when things start to fall apart in her life, doesn't have like a family's house that she could run to, or, you know, Disney always does this and they just kill them off. I had them, <laughs> they just killed the parents off. I, I deported them, but <laughs> I needed, but because I needed, I needed this person to be kind of on their own. But if I'm going to do that, I can't then just have that happen and ignore um, some of the political conversations around, you know, what happens to people when when their their parents are deported, but they are an American, and and how that affects a family unit. That's interesting. I think it makes for again, a more complex book when you hit on some of these broader themes. It feels a lot like what they tell you in journalism, which is that you need to teach and preach, right? You need to do the entertaining, but you want your reader to come away feeling like they really got something out of it as well. So it makes for a much more satisfying read. Thank you. And I do try in it not to really hammer home a political viewpoint. It's more like, it's just that I think that we all live in a certain landscape and you have to reflect that, that landscape. I'm writing one now where it's about the, it takes place in the pandemic. And uh, the, the crux of it is that there's a moratorium on evictions and this family starts to kind of rent up rent out the top floor of their house and they start to believe that the people they're renting to were involved in a murder of their their dear friends and they can't get them out right and and maybe you know it's it's questionable as to whether these the family that they're renting to actually had anything to do with it but it's that tension of like these um you know and it's not saying that there should or should not be an eviction moratorium it's just saying it exists. And so then what would happen in this, this kind of a scenario? Oh, that sounds like it's going to be really good. There's a lot of things that you could draw on from the pandemic, I'm sure. That's right. I just hope that readers don't get too annoyed with, she pulled down her mask. <laughs> We've been living it. That's right. <laughs> 
summer 2022. So I'm hoping by then we'll have enough distance to appreciate it. But it is dicey because people might just be like, oh no, I'm done. I, I, I want nothing to do, you know, it might take 10 years before we feel, we feel comfortable exploring that artistically. So I hope I'm not jumping the gun. Well, and I need to ask you because this is the Princeton Alumni Weekly. Does Princeton ever appear in your books in a setting, in a person, in a theme? Um, you know, I really haven't drawn on it yet. I really loved Princeton. I had a I had a great time there, and I also um, I learned so much. I was a political science major, which at the time when I went was where they stuck all the journalists because you could, you know all the journalists either went to like that or history because um, if, if you were writing kind of about uh, contemporary happenings, and so there was there was a correlation there. And then you took all the humanities journalism classes as electives, but you couldn't major in it. Yeah, I mean, one day, one day I will, but I also don't want to, you know, I write kind of dark things that I guess I don't want to disparage my alma mater. It's like, I don't want a murder to happen at Princeton. I want to like leave it alone. <laughs> so, I can well, understand it's, that. It's changed. Like when we were there, right, we had the Nude Olympics was canceled, like when I was there, which now looking back, right, in this climate, like the fact that that even existed, but but it did. And yeah, you could totally see an awful murder mystery happening set, you know, the 1980s nude Olympics. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like a book to me. <laughs> there you go. Well, listen, we've gone through most of my questions. You know, is there anything else that you want to say or anything else that comes to mind to include? It's been, it's been so nice. Thank you for having me. And um, it's so great to be interviewed by the Paul. Podcast is a monthly interview podcast produced by the Princeton Alumni Weekly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can read transcripts of every episode on our website, paw.princeton.edu. Music for this podcast is licensed from First Come Music.